Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 144 for the first half of December 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is how we know about stuff that's far away, but we don't even know what's going on in our own solar system. As I begin to emerge from a gigantic mountain of work to crawl under a slightly smaller one, I'm going to return to basics for this episode's shorter main segment and look into a claim that I've heard more frequently than I would like, and it goes something like this. The solar system is anywhere from one to two light years in diameter. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what's out there. We really we talk about these solar systems that are, I don't know, 20 light years, 200 light years away. It's, it's, it's absurd to me because <laughs> they're, they're, they're talking about, you know, these perturbations on, on orbits and things like that. To me, I, I, I don't even take it seriously anymore because we don't know what's in our own solar system. In other words, astronomers and scientists in general seem so certain about things far away, but we don't seem to even know what's going on right in our own backyard. And if that's the case, then how can we possibly know what's going on so far away? This is a case where we really do know what's going on far away, but we do have trouble with some close-up stuff. In other words, the person who said that and other people who make similar claims are incorrect, and the reason is one of those things that once you understand it, you'd wonder how you could possibly have ever been so confused in the first place. And conspiracists will drop their conspiracies and will all have world peace and feed the hungry too. When I was trying to think of an analogy for this situation, the first thing that came to mind is something that I've discussed with the Apollo moon hoax claims, specifically the one where people point out that pictures are rectangular, or that the big crosshair in the center isn't actually in the center and it's at an angle. Conspiracists and anomaly hunters will make a huge deal out of these, claiming that since NASA says the big crosshair is always supposed to be in the center of the square film, then these pictures prove that NASA is lying, and therefore they're lying about everything. But the answer, it's, it's really simple. Rotate and crop. The square pictures were rotated so that, for example, something like the horizon line is straight horizontal, and then the picture is cropped to give it a more photogenic scene, like removing a bunch of black sky and cropped to be square, because that's generally what we do with printing and pictures, because pixels are square. When pointed out, it's so simple that you'd wonder why and how you could ever have thought that this was evidence for the moon landings being a hoax. Similarly, there's this claim about knowing about stuff that's far away but not nearby, and if we don't know about the nearby stuff, then we couldn't possibly know about the far away stuff. Here's what I'd suggest as a practical experiment that you can do that really is going to be what I'm going to talk about for the next 10 minutes or so. If you're driving, look out the front windshield, which you already should be doing anyway, so get off your phone and stop texting. If you're not driving and you have a window nearby, look out the window. Otherwise, do this when you can look out a window. Pick some feature that's far away. For me, there are some mountains, perhaps 30 miles or 50 kilometers away from me. Those mountains are really big. They're really obvious. I know that they're there because they're a big, major feature. But... If I then come back to the foreground, 
I have absolutely no idea how many tiny pieces of dirt are on the ground right in front of me. Or if you're driving, you have no idea how many tiny rocks or pebbles are right beside your car right now. Or right now. And that's really all there is to this. Astronomers, just like you in this experiment, are really good at picking out big, obvious structures that are far away. We're less good at picking out relatively tiny things that are close by. For us, it has to do with two very basic things. How big something is on the sky, or its angular size, and how bright it is as seen from Earth. Let's think about something like a galaxy, one that we're not in. For fun, let's pick the Andromeda Galaxy, also known as M31, which is the biggest close galaxy to us, and one that will eventually collide with ours in a few billion years. The Andromeda Galaxy is about 2.5 million, with an M, light years away. That's about 1.5 times 10 to the 19th power miles, or 2.4 times 10 to the 19th kilometers really far away. But it's also gigantic. In our sky, while its core is perhaps half the size of the full moon, its full extent, as seen from Earth, is about six full moons long by about three full moons wide. The reason why they're not the same is because the galaxy is tilted at an angle relative to us. It's also visible to the unaided eye if you know where to look and you aren't in a city. It shines with the light of about one trillion stars, which is about three times as many as there are in our own galaxy. Now, compare that with the asteroid that passed by Earth on October 31st, 2015. The asteroid, known officially as 2015 TB145, but which I'll call the Great Pumpkin, spends most of its time a little bit past Mars. It's about 600 meters or 2,000 feet across. It passed Earth about twice as far as the Moon's orbit. It was discovered on October 10th, 2015, three weeks before it made its closest approach, when it had a brightness magnitude of 20, meaning that it was about 1 to 10 million times fainter than the Andromeda galaxy. When it passed closest to Earth just three weeks later, it had an apparent magnitude of 10, meaning that it was only about 500 times fainter than the Andromeda galaxy. Remember, with a magnitude scale and brightness, smaller numbers, and you can go negative, means that it's brighter. This is an excellent example of how we didn't know about this object until three weeks before its closest approach with Earth, and it got as close as only twice as far away as the Moon. But, at that time, it was 500 times fainter than the Andromeda Galaxy, and it covered about 0.009% of the size of the full moon, as seen at that time from Earth. Big, bright, and far is a lot easier than faint, small, and close. As another example, exoplanets are still big in the popular culture. The primary way to detect them now, with the success of the Kepler mission, is the transit method, whereby the planet goes in front of its parent star, as seen from Earth, and we see this as a very slight change in the brightness of the star's light because the planet blocks part of the star's disk. They are much, much too far away to resolve the system and see the actual disk of the star and the planet pass in front of it, but we effectively get a graph with a steady line of total star brightness that quickly and briefly drops down a bit when the planet passes in front. Because area goes as diameter squared, if we see a 1% reduction in light, then the planet was 10% the diameter of the star. This would be like Jupiter passing in front of the Sun. 
If we see a 0.01% reduction in light, then the planet was 1%, the diameter of the star, which would be like Earth passing in front of the Sun. These days, with CCD chips and very basic computer software, these things are actually somewhat easy to detect, so long as you have the observation time. And at least the big ones that go in front of their star often are even easier to detect so that you don't have to stare at them for a really long time hoping for a transit when the star might not even have a planet. Incidentally, that's why the majority of known exoplanets orbit their stars in just a few days. Those are the easiest to detect because it's something that you can do with, say, just a month of observing time. Also, all of the exoplanets that were originally known were really, really big because, again, those are the easiest to detect. Really big blocks more light from the star, meaning that you don't have to have as precise of a detector in order to detect it because it's going to block more than, say, Earth, 0.01% of the light. It's going to block a few percent of the star's light. Moving on, we can contrast that with what conspiracy people say about a possible hidden planet X in our own solar system. In other words, detecting an exoplanet really far away versus detecting a planet in our own solar system. And I will revise the statement. It's not just conspiracy people. I've said on this program and elsewhere, as have other astronomers, as I'll talk about also in the new news segment later, that it is entirely possible that there is a planet-sized object out there in the cold reaches of the solar system, still in orbit around the sun, that we just haven't seen yet. But then, how could that possibly be the case if we can see planets around other stars gajillions of times farther away? How could we not know if there are more planets in our own solar system? Or, well, if you take the conspiracy side, since we don't know if there are other planets in our solar system or they're being hidden, then doesn't that mean that we couldn't possibly know about other planets around other stars and the entire field is a forgery? No. The reason is that they are completely different things. It's easier to tell if a bug passes in front of a porch light, if you're watching it, than if there's a bug somewhere in the same room as you when that room is lit by only one lamp in the middle and you're somewhat close to it. To tell if there's a bug in front of a porch light, you see the light dim a tiny bit, but very briefly. Since many bugs are attracted to light, you'll likely see the light's output appear to flicker as the bug continuously passes in front of it, then to the side or behind, just like an exoplanet around its star, though a bit more haphazard. But then, let's go back to your room in a non-creepy way. You have a lamp in the middle, and you're reading a book so that you're somewhat close to the lamp. For those listeners under the age of 20, a book is a thing with words printed on paper, where paper is the stuff that comes out of your printer. It's like a non-digital Kindle, if you can imagine that. To tell if there's a bug in the room with you, assuming that you don't hear it, then you have to do a very careful, methodical search all around the room, looking carefully all around you. And if the bug is big, you might see it. If the bug is tiny, then maybe you need to get a set of binoculars to do your search, which will then, of course, take longer because you have to search more slowly because you don't see as much of the room with binoculars as you do with your eye. And if the bug moves, well, maybe you have to go back and research the same spot twice or three times. In other words, to get back to the science and away from the analogy, this is a case where it's not just as simple as one thing is big and bright and far away versus small and faint and close, like the Andromeda Galaxy versus the Big Pumpkin, or the Great Pumpkin, 
But it's also because the entire method of finding things within our own solar system can be different from the method for finding the same kind of thing in a different solar system. I started out by presenting a claim that may seem on its face to make some sense, and you might wonder how we can know anything. Just like the idea that it took two parents to make me, two parents each to make them, meaning four, two each to make those so you have eight, and by the time you get to my great-great-great-grandparents, there must have been 32 people. So how could the population of the world be increasing now, since there must have been a near-infinite population back then to give rise to all the people today? Right? Well, no. As I explained, it's just a simple, straightforward factoid that you're missing, And, once explained, hopefully that initial claim, that initial misconception, is shown to be nothing but giants gently turning in the wind. The logical fallacy for this episode is the false equivalence fallacy, which falls under the red herring and therefore a non-sequitur fallacy category. The entire episode topic resides under the false equivalence fallacy, where you say that two things are the same, but because we can do one and not the other, then we can't do either of them. In other words, a more formal definition of the fallacy that's less tailored to this episode is that two things are equated then shown that different claims are made about them, and through saying that they're the same, at least one of those claims must be wrong. But those two were never equal in the first place, therefore the conclusion that claims about them must be the same is also wrong. A manufactured example that I just thought of because I took a break writing this to visit the pantry is, these two snacks are both crunchy. There is no difference between pretzels and pickles. This should not be confused, unlike some websites that I read, which did confuse them, with the false balance fallacy, which is a form of the argument to moderation. This is like where a news station would give equal time to an evolutionary biologist and a young earth creationist, and then say that the evidence for evolution is still uncertain and being hotly debated in the sciences. There are three stories this episode for the new news section. The first one is one that I've gotten the most requests for to discuss than any other topic or story in this podcast's history, and that's the announcement in mid-October about the Kepler spacecraft finding a star that had an odd dimming to it. Since part of this episode talked about exoplanets and light dimming from stars, I get to not have to go through that background information again for this story. Instead, we can get right into what the Kepler spacecraft saw. The star had the unimaginative name of KIC 8462852. I'll just call it Kick for fun. It's about one and a half times as hot as the sun. In the beginning of Kepler's third year of operations, the craft observed the star to dim by 15%, and then it resumed close to its baseline brightness. 700 days later, it had a large number of significant dips in brightness, close together, by up to 22%. Remember from about 10 minutes ago what I said about Jupiter passing in front of the Sun. As seen from elsewhere in the solar system, the Sun's light would dim by about 1%. Doing the math, taking the square root of 22%, the object that passed in front of Kick must have had 
about 46% the diameter of the star, or having an equivalent diameter to 46% that of the star, which is slightly bigger than our own star, or Kik is slightly bigger than our own star. And besides those major dips in brightness, there are many random dips observed that are smaller than 1%, and they have odd non-symmetric shapes to them. So, we have a gigantic dimming with smaller dimming between its non-periodic, neither of which have been seen before. The astronomers studying these data have said that they eliminated instrumental errors, star spots, dust rings, and pulsations from the possibilities. They also ruled out a collision between two planets that could throw up a gigantic dust cloud because the dust would be warm and emit infrared light, but there is no excess of infrared light observed from this star. In the publication, the leading idea that the authors proposed was comets. It's a bit odd for what we've seen elsewhere that comets could dim a star's light by that much, but perhaps it's a large, abnormally large swarm of comets. Of course, at the time, this really got no play because what got all the press was aliens. Because, of course, it's an astronomy mystery, therefore, aliens. It's not an insane idea, as other astronomers have pointed out. I first learned of the idea of what's called a Dyson Sphere from a Star Trek episode in the early 1990s, but engineers have since then pointed out that it might be easier, instead of enclosing an entire star, to build a constellation of objects to absorb the star's light to provide energy for a very advanced civilization. That could cause this kind of dimming as those structures gigantic structures passed in front of the stars seen from Earth. Then SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, compounded the internet hubbub by deciding to capitalize on it and point their listening ears towards the star to see if they could detect any radio signals that might be leaked by the would-be intelligent species. This was widely reported. What was much less widely reported is that they found nothing although I have an article linked in the show notes where Phil Plate did discuss that they found nothing. Phil also mentioned in his post that Paul Gilster at the Centauri Dreams blog pointed out that some stars are very oblate, meaning that they bulge around their equator, kind of like Jupiter, because they rotate so rapidly. And on oblate stars, the brightness can vary significantly across the disk because of the shape's effect on the internal dynamics. In other words, if the star is oblate, that could account for some of the brightness changes, and some of the asymmetry of those changes. Couple that with a very large, asymmetric cloud of comets that was recently perturbed by a passing star, and we get close to a plausible, natural scenario that does not involve aliens. Is this solved? Absolutely not. I expect that papers will be written about this for many years with follow-up data and propositions of new models to explain it. However, this case clearly shows the scientific process in action, all because we don't have a 100% explained case-closed answer to a very recent announcement does not mean that we must jump automatically to aliens. The second story is an actual follow-up to two previous episodes, episode 27 and 37, where I discussed and interviewed uh, two lawyers, actually, space law and ownership rights anywhere that isn't Earth. 
The gist of those episodes was that a property right is enforced by a government, and it's only meaningful if other governments recognize that government's ability to give ownership. An analogy that I remember from some class that I took is that early in America's United States history, we did not actually recognize British copyrights. And so authors in the United States were actually free to, well, duplicate British authors' publications and publish them in America, and they weren't prosecuted because the U.S. government simply did not recognize the British government's copyright laws. Same kind of thing, although with land instead of uh, the works of Shakespeare or something. To the story, though, it's a disturbing development where the U.S. Congress has recently moved to violate an international treaty to which the U.S. is signatory, which states, in part, that bodies off of Earth will be free from government claims of sovereignty. The U.S. Senate in mid-November passed the Space Act of 2015, which contains many provisions, including the ability for the U.S. to grant asteroid resource and space resource rights to U.S. citizens who manage to actually obtain them. There is perhaps a legitimate reason to do this, and that's to encourage commercial spaceflight and development, and likely the only way that this would happen is if companies can gather something that is a commercial resource in space, like minerals on asteroids. However, as I said, it violates international law, and so what President Obama does, whether he vetoes this or signs it, assuming the Senate bill is reconciled with the House version and both are passed, it could also violate international law. The third story for this episode is a follow-up to every Planet X episode I've done, and that has to do with an announcement in mid-November at the Division of Planetary Sciences meeting of the American Astronomical Society, or the DPS meeting of the AAS. A team announced that they had discovered the now most distant known object in the solar system, designated an unexciting V774104. I'm going to call it Bob. The likely size of Bob is 300 to 600 miles in diameter, or 500 to 1,000 kilometers in diameter, which would put it at roughly half to almost as large as Pluto's binary companion, Charon, or roughly a quarter to half the size of Pluto. It currently lies about 103 astronomical units from the Sun, which is over twice as far as Pluto. What's unknown is its orbit, among many other things. Because of Godold, Kepler, and his laws of planetary motion, objects far from the Sun move much more slowly. Since this was just discovered, we have very, very little of its orbit charted, and hence there is a large uncertainty on what that orbit actually is. It could be like Sedna, which comes as close as 86 AU and goes as far as 937 AU from the Sun. The reason that Bob is the most distant currently known object is because Sedna is very close to its closest point to the Sun. This object, Bob, could also be kind of like Pluto, only varying about 20% of its orbital distance. Or it could be on a very highly circular orbit, although that's unlikely given what we know about solar system dynamics. This fits nicely with the discussion at the end of this episode's main segment, where I talked about finding distant solar system objects. There are almost certainly more objects out there that are hundreds of kilometers across besides Bob, besides Sedna, besides Eris, and the other ones too. There are almost certainly more out there. 
but finding them is really, really hard. And we do have upper limits for how big or how close the really, really big ones could be because we would have seen them already given the all-sky surveys that currently exist. But as technology gets better, I strongly suspect that we will continue every few years unless there's a big leap in technology like CCDs were, in which case we'll get a lot at once, we're going to continue to see announcements like this one. For announcements, as a follow-up to the A equals 440 Hz episode, and a follow-up to episode 142 where I played three tones spaced apart by 10 minutes each, I figured I should probably actually give the answers. In episode 141, the second tone was lower, which everyone who wrote in got correct. In episode 142, I got much fewer response, unsurprisingly, and only Pat Roach of the Reality Check podcast got them correct, where the first was 432 hertz, and the second and third were both 440 hertz. Though I likely went too far in that extreme in terms of spacing between each tone in episode 142, it was more realistic and relevant to the points that I was trying to make, or at least one of the points that I was trying to make in episode 141, that unless tones are played really close together, you're never really going to hear a difference between them. If you go to one concert where A is tuned to 430 Hz, and you go to another concert where A is tuned to 445, you're not going to notice. For the second announcement in this episode, if you're listening to these when they come out, you'll probably notice I skipped 143. That's for the people who have triskaidekaphobia. Well, more realistically, uh, episode 143 should go out soon, where soon is undefined at the moment and will be backdated to November 1st. It will be an interview that I did in early July. With that said, I do hope and expect that the episodes will be coming out again back to my normal twice-a-month release schedule. Uh, Again, uh, because I still do have a lot of meetings and trips and other things, it may not be exactly on the 1st and the 16th of the month, but there should be again two episodes per month. That wraps up this topic on the 144th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and a couple random people on the internet that you'll never meet in real life.